2: Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books and Disability Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a PhD candidate in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. L. Logan Smiljes for this channel. Dr. Smiljes is Assistant Professor of English Language and Literatures at the University of British Columbia. Today, we'll be in conversation about their new book, Queer Silence on Disability and Rhetorical Absence, published by the University of Minnesota Press this year. Welcome to the New Books Network, Logan.
1: Hi, Shahini. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: Of course, I'm, I'm thrilled um, to be in conversation with you today. Could you begin by talking a little bit about your journey, both intellectually and effectively, and how it um, has brought you to Queer Silence?
1: Absolutely. Um, I am very honest in the book, as you know by this point. Um, I open and close the book with some anecdotes or reflections on my experience in conversion therapy. And it was really that experience that prompted me to begin thinking about the questions which would ultimately lead to writing Queer Silence. Um, I think that my interest in absence, invisibility, and of course silence was really generated by. by the, the kind of embodied feeling of, of n- not being able to speak um, and feeling as though my kind of voicelessness were not only something that was often kind of oppressive, um, but also allowed me to explore other ways of moving and being and feeling that, um, that helped to save my life. And I think that um, it's it's worth noting too that that queer silence is is really focused on the relationship between queerness and disability, and conversion therapy is in many ways the kind of um, pinnacle of that collision, um, because it's in that clinical space that queerness and other forms of kind of deviant gender and sexuality are pathologized. And so when I kind of was confronted with having my own gender and sexuality turned into disabilities, um, it, it really, it, it opened me to, <laughs> to the violence, um, that that kind of rhetorical work can produce um, but then over time also allowed me to start thinking about how um, the interanimation of gender, disability, and sexuality can also be liberatory um, and can help us to think through new and better worlds for all of us, um, regardless of the identities or positions that we hold.
2: Yeah, it's your introduction was was extremely moving, but it also made me um angry in, in 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 many ways. And um it's I thought it was a really powerful way of, of beginning um this story and, and your journey into queer silence. Um You write, and I quote, um, queer silence is not code for gay silence. Um, Could you talk a little bit about this distinction and why is it an important one to make? Um, And how does this difference constitute your book?
1: Sure. One of the challenges of writing this book, at at least for me, um, was striking a balance between specificity and capaciousness. I wanted to do the near impossible thing of unpacking particular moments and examples of queer silence at work, while also gesturing toward the much larger ecology of queer silences that inform the survival tactics of many different groups. And so by distinguishing between queer silence and gay silence, I'm really trying to emphasize that in the book, I'm not only talking about sexual minorities. I'm talking about lots of people who find themselves variously abjected or rendered non-normative within their local communities.
2: Right. um... Your, your book is wonder, wonderfully interdisciplinary and is informed by feminist theory, um, black feminism, disability studies, particularly critical disability studies, mm-hmm. um, trans studies and rhetorical studies. While going through um, your your incredible book, I felt it could not have been anything but anti-disciplinary or interdisciplinary in many ways. Um, I, I felt it could not have been confined to a traditional discipline. Um, could you tell us how the interdisciplinary nature of the book Enabled you to pursue and complicate the idea of queer
1: silence. I think, I think like many emerging and junior scholars, I find disciplinarity rather stifling. Um, I adopt methods and methodologies based on how well they help me to answer the questions that I'm asking and how well they serve the communities to whom I hold myself accountable, um, not so much based on how they've been institutionalized. So despite that my training is in rhetorical studies, um, there, there, are, there are limits to what I think rhetoric can do for me. Um, there were questions that I was asking that I, I did not think Rhetoric could help me to answer in ways that I felt were um, satisfying, and I realized that pretty early on um, in the, really the research stage for this book. And so, by turning to other fields, other disciplines, um, I was able to kind of call together a much a much more robust methodological approach that that left me feeling like i understood what i was arguing with a bit more depth um, but i also think that knowing what i mentioned before about wanting queer silence to speak to many different kinds of silences from many different groups it was really important to me that I draw on the knowledges, insights and conversations that are already available within these groups. And so in a way, then I I suppose my interdisciplinarity was, was something of of a, of a citation politics where drawing on these fields is a way of acknowledging that these conversations, these arguments are already taking place in lots of different communities. Um, who may or may not use the language of queerness, who may or may not use the language of disability. And it's only really by thinking across these differences that we're going to be able to have meaningful conversations or make meaningful contributions to those of us who occupy multiple categories um, or want to be accountable to people who aren't exactly like us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also weave autoethnographic elements into the book. Um, and I think it makes it's what it is, critical and nuanced. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about your uh, methodological choices and, and how they inform your conceptualization of queer silence?
1: Sure. Um, I can talk a, little, a, a bit about the auto-ethnographic elements, um, which, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm already recognizing are drawing a lot of people's attention and interest. Um, you know, the book has been out for less than a month now, and I have been so humbled by people's engagement um, with it. And I've also been so surprised by how the vast majority of questions or comments I receive about the book have to do with narrative, um, and with my uh, use of anecdotes or, or autoethnography. Um, and the truth is that I almost always weave personal anecdotes into my scholarship. Uh, for folks who are familiar with my other work, they'll very well know that I'm, I'm always talking about myself. Um, but this decision to talk about myself is not meant to be egotistical. Uh, it's, it's really important to me, that I situate myself in relation to what or whom I'm writing about. And to be honest with you, I'm usually dissatisfied by folks attempts to situate themselves by just like listing their identities, um, which is, I think continues to be the most common way of situating yourself in scholarship is to say, you know, I, you know, for me, it would be like I am a, I am a white, disabled, non binary person. And I think that by listing out those categories, it gestures toward a relation to power, but it doesn't offer nearly the kind of complexity that I think stories can offer us. I find that by narrativizing, myself I'm able to much more robustly contextualize my relation to the work um and then I guess also I'm I'm just autistic so (laughs) thinking in stories is accessible for me and I just I don't know why I would write anything even a book in a way that isn't accessible to me
2: Absolutely, and I think for um, variously marginalized scholars, it's it's important that we tell our tell our own stories, um, and spaces where we can do um do the work of um storing our lives are shrinking and, and I felt um your book in a way is a resistance um to that shrinkage um to the demands of diminishment that's placed on us in various ways. Um, you, you write that queer silence and rhetorical absence um, or other forms of rhetorical energy or, or embody-minded presence is a relational project. Um, could you tell us how relationality is um, forged through such absence and silence can challenge um, what you call cisheteroeblism?
1: So I think that mutual illegibility or... Shared refusals of dominant identity categories uh, can be opportunities to to sidestep the respectability and visibility-based politics that tend to overwhelm many queer, trans, and disabled people, um, particularly white, queer, trans, and disabled people. Um, I think that... Our communities spend so much time policing one another that we forget that such, that such int- intra, like within community conflict can sometimes be a tool of the oppressor. Um, and that's not to say that intra-community critique or conflict is always a tool of the oppressor. Um, in fact, I think that accountability is really, really important and necessary to the kind of survival or maintenance of communities um, but sometimes it is a tool of the oppressor and uh, and so silence and absence um, which you know I can configure as these kinds of strategies and modalities of refusal can help to avoid this trap this trap of endless conflict. Uh, I think that sometimes, or even often cis hetero ableism is um, enforced by dominant institutions such as the medical industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, capitalism, neoliberalism. Um, But I also think that cis hetero ableism kind of weaves its way into our own kind of marginalized communities and you know in the book i i'm particularly interested in how ableism is is at the foundation of a lot of mainstream queer politics and certainly in the field of queer studies and so given the slipperiness of cishetero ableism i think that a lot of multiply marginalized uh, queer people find find a kind of relief in building communities or building forms of community relations that just don't bother with the rubric of identity um, or that find ways of, of navigating their kind of legibility under the language of queerness Um, that has less to do with being like a good queer or a radical queer or an ethical queer than it does with just like surviving and finding pleasure um, and making friends. And I think there's something really beautiful about that uh, in a way that queer studies hasn't quite learned how to address or talk about.
2: Absolutely. That's that's beautifully put Um, in the in the first chapter of your book um, entitled To Speak of Silence, you talk about how queer bodies um, are capable of are are capable of um, signification, even in the absence of language um, and hence contribute to critical counter, counter discourses in and of themselves. But you add an interesting caveat. You write that it is mostly assumed that only visible bodies and visibly queer bodies can signify. Um, But you move away from this position and remain curious about um, the body-minded visual material signification produced by bodies who are queered. Not by their sexuality, but by their race and disability, um, because they fail to approximate um white cis heteronormativity. Um, could you talk a little bit about the possibilities um, dissident forms of signification generate, um, and how visibility is rendered inconsequential in this context?
1: Yes, um, what a question! <laughs> so good. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll preface by saying that. I don't think visibility is entirely inconsequential. Um, In fact, I think it is very consequential and and, in many ways structures a person's capacity to engage absence and invisibility. But it is absolutely true that I think visibility is fetishized in some political and academic discourses where it's either glorified as the kind of ultimate signal of liberation or it's entirely dismissed as a liberal compromise of sorts that trends toward inclusion rather than, I don't know, revolution. Um, so for me, both visibility and visibility, presence and absence are in constant negotiation. And I I'm really interested in how queer people are using invisibility, absence and silence as tools to forge these kinds of alternative community formations that I mentioned a moment ago that just aren't always legible under the rubric of queerness as it's generally understood. And, and these formations can take shape in any number of ways. Um, in the book, I write about blank profiles on Grindr. Um, I talk about ex-gay weekend retreats. Uh, I talk about trans elders who um, are remain kind of really fond or maintain these attachments to their pre-transition selves and lives. I talk about disabled performers who are really kind of resisting a lot of the Uh, criteria that are typically associated with quote unquote, like good performance. Um, And so I, I think that these, these forms of these forms of community, these forms of being with or being together um, are, are at once really valuable and yet, not always or entirely visible in the ways that are generally demanded of marginalized people in order to be um, recognized as, I don't know, politically generative or, or useful. I suppose... I suppose I, I think that... The kind of counter discourses that you mentioned can come to be sometimes by just indulging one's own capacity for for pleasure or for joy or laughter, um, or by really resisting. The risks of violence that can attend more traditional forms of political action um, that require speech and visibility. Uh, I suppose when I talk about silence in the book, I'm really urging readers to adopt a stance of generosity that attends to other people and practices and places um, with with an openness toward toward the costs of survival and not only thinking about survival as like staying alive like you know breathing and eating but survival as as having a life worth living and and i i think as i as i said a bit ago queer studies hasn't quite learned how to grapple with with the conditions under which many queer people are trying to survive and i think in order to begin grappling with those conditions we first and foremost have to just be a little bit more open-minded
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Um, in Neuroqueer Intimacy, is a, a chapter I absolutely loved, you write about um, the cross-movement work silence does, um, which often goes unrecognized and unappreciated because it does not render itself legible to identity-based um, frameworks. Could you talk a little bit about subversive, um, transformative forms of cross-movement work that silence makes happen and um, how it escapes really the, the trappings of identity?
1: Yeah. So the the term neuroqueer intimacies is drawing on two different kind of intellectual conversations. Um, I I take the word intimacies um, from how Jennifer Nash uses the term, um, because for her, intimacy is a way of thinking about togetherness. It's thinking about Uh, forms of coalition um, that don't actually rely on what people have in common, but instead rely on what people, uh, I'm sorry, I should clarify that it doesn't rely on what people have in common right now, like identifying shared struggles or uh, common forms of, of, of oppression. Um, but instead, might be imagined as um, a shared dream, right? What do we want for the world? And then I take the language of neuroqueerness as uh, Remy Urgo talks about it, and in, in her really beautiful book, authoring Autism, where she where she proposes that many disabled folks, particularly autistic folks, um, are never offered the agency um, to, to talk about their own experiences. And so to be rendered or to be kind of diagnosed with autism or to be rendered autistic is to at once be appended with a label, but also to be stripped of the opportunity to talk about that label. You're always either too autistic to be talking about autism, or not autistic enough because you're not "quote unquote" really autistic to be talking about autism. It's a it's an impossible space, and so by kind of conjoining these concepts of intimacy and neuroqueerness, um, I'm envisioning uh, forms of coming together that aren't that don't muster the kind of agential action that we think of as political or that we think of as radical, even though they are actions that are deeply meaningful to the people who perform them. And it's in this chapter that I talk about a lot of uh, uh, several different forms of disability performance art Um, but toward the end of the chapter, I also kind of just list out an assemblage of very various, um, intimacies, neuroqueer intimacies, um, that come to mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about the concept and they include things like holding a stranger's glance or getting snacks with someone at a gas station or taking a shower with someone who might need some help getting in and out, but also like you're attracted to. And so want to take a shower with them. Um, And it's like these moments of just quotidian being together, desiring together. That's the phrase I use in the chapter, desiring together um, that like that make our lives worth living. And, and I don't think that they have to be, I don't think that they have to change the world. Like, I don't think that they, that an action or uh, an intimacy has to alter the material conditions of our lives in order to make the material conditions of our lives more tolerable. And sometimes making something more tolerable is what we need right now um and so i in that chapter i wanted to practice the kind of generosity that i talked about a bit ago by just by just celebrating the many different ways that people come together when they need it offer one another what they have and don't expect anything to change because of it and it's just so deeply human these this minutiae that i'm i'm referring to and i i suppose i just i i become rather enraptured with with the beauty of humans being humans
2: this is this is this is lovely um In the section about Rodney Bell's um, performance for Sense Invalid, you argue that it troubles um, the boundaries between disability and indigeneity um, and is an invitation to decolonize disability by refusing colonial and settler colonial logics um, associated with it and and you explore how this connects with racist xenophobia, um, and 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 this performance took place in the U.S. Uh, could you tell us how illegibility um, figures in this performance and and how it makes possible decolonial cross movement um, intimacies?
1: Definitely. Um, so I'll begin with just the kind of opening observation that disability looks different. In different places, um, and immigrants to the U.S. have historically been indexed as disabled through the immigration process, uh, even if they were not considered disabled elsewhere um, where they were previously. Um, and often, the trauma of migration itself can be disabling. Um, and so, something that I I appreciate about Bell's performance. Is that he leans into the slipperiness of identity categories when the markers that we typically associate with them, um, such as a wheelchair for physical disability or Maori music for indigeneity, are are troubled. Um, and I should I should probably explain uh, for folks who haven't read the book that the the particular performance I write about um, took place. Um, in the US as part of a Sins Invalid showcase, I believe in 2008 and uh, Rodney Bell, who is a disabled uh, Maori kind of dancer and performance performance artist. He suspended himself um, in his wheelchair above a stage um, and throughout the performance, uh, which includes this and is kind of set to the, the backdrop of of traditional Maori music, um uh Bell is lowered and kind of performs these various acrobatic stunts or movements um in the air, but in, he is slowly lowered to the ground. Um and so in in this performance um, while his, you know, his chair is suspended off the floor, and it's taking place in the U.S., um, we're we're in, we're kind of confronted. The audience is confronted with with the slipperiness of identity because you don't need a wheelchair if you're in the air. So it's unclear what purpose that assistive technology is serving, um, and especially since, you know, flying is not something we typically associate with, um, you know, abledness. Um, in the context of this performance, if it were not for the chair, the audience may not know that Bell was disabled. Um, and then in with regard to his indigeneity, um, you know, the U.S. is not where Maori people have historically resided, and so in the context of the presentation or of, of the performance, Bell is at once um, a an indigenous person who has confronted the violence of colonization um, in his kind of ancestral lands in what is now commonly called New Zealand, um, but also but also living as an immigrant in the U.S. and so there's a lot happening um, with his own kind of positionality and embody mindedness that is called into question that I, I, that I say is suspended both literally into the air, but also conceptually figuratively. Um, And that this suspension is a really nice kind of metaphor for how neuroqueer intimacies and other forms of kind of queer, silent cross movement work. Oh, I'm so so sorry about that. Um, That how, how these forms of, of neuroqueer intimacies or queer silent work, um, cross movement work often like often occur um, where it requires that we be less interested in dominant identity categories than we are in, than we are in the kind of worlds that we're moving to, or the worlds that we're, that we're wanting for ourselves and for others. Um, and the world that Bell crafts in his performance is is beautiful. It's a world that is not set into stone, but, but very much gestural and um and i think that that kind of potentiality is it's not complete but it is enough and and i want to i want to honor that enoughness
2: yeah that's that's incredible yeah um you conclude um the book by rooting for this attachment genealogy and 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 reveal that um it and I'm quoting you it it reveals queer shame's implicit dependence on an utter terror of the shamefulness of um disability unquote. You also write that um this recovers um pathological shame as a refurbished queer attachment, um and it 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 really does not augur um, well for queer studies um this kind of attachment. Could you expand on this for our audience?
1: Yes. Um, So to explain, I I propose a disattachment genealogy um, in the epilogue for the book as a way of mapping the objects, whether they're people or practices or places um, that have not only failed to secure recognition in queer studies, um, but through their failure, have engendered queer studies. Um, like, they've, they've engendered the field through their very constitutive absence. Uh, in the book, I'm, I'm particularly attentive to how the category of disability, along with many disabled people, are necessarily disavowed from queer politics and queer studies, because it's only through our negation that the field is able to distinguish itself from what it has very long contended is just pathological excess. Um, And there are many historical reasons for this contention that I overview in the book, but my hope with a disattachment genealogy is that it will expose many of the norms that have come to structure the field of queer studies. um, And that by exposing these norms, it will allow us to kind of detach ourselves from the deceptive closed mindedness of queer studies um, in order to attend to those objects that, that have been haunting the field since its inception. Um, And so I'm really envisioning a disattachment genealogy working alongside what Kaji Amin um, intends with what he calls an attachment genealogy So whereas Amin's attachment genealogy is is attending to the various objects that have secured queer attachment um, since the field's inception, I am really looking at the opposite. So those objects that, again, not only have been disavowed, but have been necessarily disavowed in order for the field to secure the attachments that, that Amin's project is looking at. Um, so I, I, I really admire uh, the, the work that Amin does in, in disturbing attachments. and I, um, so I guess I, I, I wanted this epilogue to be, um, to be both a, a kind of fangirling of uh, his project and also a kind of intervention in how we might extend it
2: yeah it's i i thought it was perfect and and appropriate um and, and did a huge service to the book um in many ways um this was wonderful logan um i realize we are at the end of um this episode but before we let you go would you like to tell our audience what you're currently working on
1: i'd love to so i will i'll mention two things so first i actually Just finished my second book, um, which will be out in May of 2023, and it's called Crip Negativity, Um, and it is triangulating threads of critical negativity in queer studies and black studies and crip theory in order to imagine or propose, I suppose, um, a a politics for dealing with bad crip feelings that subtend not only the field of disability studies, but, but the experience of disability. And then currently I am at work on a third book that I don't want to say too much about, but is doing some of the kind of genealogical work that I propose at the end of queer silence to think about the relationship between mental disability and gender nonconformance um, in various editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I'll, I'll leave it there.
2: Absolutely fascinating. And I I hope that we can have you back on NBN um, next year and and when your third book is out as well. Um, I've been looking forward to our conversation um, and um, also looking forward to reading your book for a very long time. And um, as I've told you before, I've felt really seen by it. And it's it's a book that I needed. Um, Thank you so much. Logan for thank being you here
1: and matter it means so much to me that you not only invited me to talk with you today but that you spent so much time feeling with the book and and writing some really thoughtful questions so thank you thank you
2: so much